Hello there. My name is Nick Whitney, and this is episode six of All You Need to Know About European History. Borrowing a strapline from the great American historian Barbara Tuchman, I have called this episode the calamitous 14th century. We finished the last episode with the Pope's success in his eternal power struggle with the Holy Roman Empire in getting Charles of Anjou installed as his vassal as King of Sicily. That was in 1266. Things seemed set fair for the papacy, not least given Charles's ambitions to extend his kingdom across the eastern Mediterranean. The main theme of this episode is how the papacy blew this opportunity and instead ended up for much of the 14th century in Babylonian captivity in Avignon, enthralled the French kings. With this, there vanished the last hope of reuniting the eastern and western churches after the Great Schism, of shoring up the tottering crusader presence in the Holy Land, or of providing any effective opposition to the subsequent advance towards Europe of the Ottoman Turks. Throw in the first half of the Hundred Years' War between England and France, and the disaster of the Black Death, and calamitous seems a fair verdict. First, however, we return to Palermo, and the tale of Charles of Anjou's plan to take over the eastern Mediterranean world from his new kingdom in Sicily. Immediately, he had to secure his title by dealing with the brood of vipers, Pope Urban's term for the late Emperor Frederick II's progeny. Charles defeated and killed Frederick's bastard son Manfred at Benevento in southern Italy in 1266, and two years later dealt similarly with Frederick's grandson, Conradine. The difference being that instead of killing him on the field of battle, Charles captured Conradine and then had him executed in Naples a shocking breach of the conventions of medieval warfare, which announced a man who meant business. Time then to turn east, egged on by the Venetians, who sensed vast commercial opportunities, entered all the ships you could need, and by the papacy, which hugged itself at the prospect of a reunited Christendom over which it could preside balancing between the Holy Roman Empire to the north and Charles's new domains in the Mediterranean. But events kept intervening. First, there was the obstinate obsession of Charles's brother Louis, uh, the sainted King of France, with prioritising the protection of the Holy Land and the battle with the infidel. Charles had little option but to join his brother for the ill-fated Eighth Crusade, which Louis led against Egypt in 1270, and where he died of fever. And then there was the dismal mortality rate amongst popes. No sooner, it seemed, had you agreed your grand strategy with one, uh, than he was off to meet his maker, and you had to wait for the conclave process to work its way through before you could renew your understanding with the new occupant of the throne of St. Peter. Nor was the problem just the frequency of conclaves. The process was becoming gridlocked, as Italian cardinals found themselves opposed by an increasingly numerous and assertive block of Frenchmen. The nadir was reached in the aftermath of the death in 1268 of Pope Clement, that's Urban IV's successor. Rome being currently in turmoil, the conclave was held in nearby Viterbo, and took three years to reach a conclusion. Since the Viterbans were expected to provide 
free board and lodging, of a quality appropriate for princes of the church, for the cardinals and their retinues, the conclave soon wore out its welcome. A campaign of harassment culminated with enraged locals tearing the roof off the meeting hall to see whether exposure to the elements would assist the cardinals in identifying God's will. The choice ultimately fell on a French-leaning Italian, absent at the time on the Ninth Crusade, who returned to become Gregory X. Unsurprisingly, one of Gregory's first church reforms was the rule whereby the cardinals were locked into the conclave and put on short commons after the first few days until they'd reached a conclusion. Infuriatingly for Charles in Palermo, Gregory turned out to share the late King Louis' preference for reconciling with Byzantium rather than conquering it. Worse, he showed himself a skilled diplomat, who found in the Byzantine emperor Michael Palaeologus a constructive negotiating partner who knew the weakness of his own position. Suddenly, a huge prize was in sight, nothing less than the healing of the two centuries-old great schism between Eastern and Western churches on terms which recognised Rome's supremacy. And so, at the Pan-Church Council convened in Lyon in 1274, the delegates from Constantinople signified their submission by joining in the Latin version of the creed which declared, and of course still does, that the Holy Ghost proceeds not just from the Father, but also from the Son, filioque. Anyone interested in the theological significance of this procession of the Holy Ghost dispute uh, will have to look elsewhere for an explanation, uh, since I refuse to take seriously a controversy so obviously created and maintained by men with other personal or geopolitical agendas. So it should be no surprise that in fairly short order the restored unity of the Church fell apart again, with the Eastern ecclesiastical authorities repudiating their delegates and the deal they had brought back, and the Emperor Michael left without the material help against Arabs and Turks that he had been so anxious to secure. Two years later, Gregory died. But Charles's hopes, with the conciliator out of the way of a, of a papal ally for his plans of Eastern conquest, were again frustrated by the inability of a posse of succeeding pontiffs to survive more than a few months in the job. 1276 and 77 saw four conclaves and five popes. Four dead popes will give rise to rumours of foul play. Nothing was ever proved, but with one of them crushed when his own ceiling fell in on him, you do have to wonder. A brief degree of stability was restored with the election of Nicholas III, who, as a sprig of the Orsini family of Roman nobility, did everything he could to oppose Charles's power in Italy. But then, in 1280, he too died, and another deadlocked conclave in Viterbo ensued, resolved by enraged Viterbans abducting two Orsini cardinals and thus clearing the way for the election of the uncompromising Frenchman Martin IV, who promptly excommunicated the Emperor Michael. At long last, conditions were finally right for Charles to begin serious preparations for the conquest of Byzantium and the restoration of the Roman Empire in the East. But he was not the only one making preparations. 
The Byzantines may have lacked territory and military muscle, but they had 900 years of diplomatic experience and plenty of gold. Nor had the papacy and its allies been wholly successful in exterminating the Stauffer brood of vipers. Constance, Manfred's daughter, was married to the new king of Aragon, Peter III. Aragon was a rising power in northeast Spain, which had also spilled over the Pyrenees into the Languedoc, putting it at daggers drawn with France. And then there was the shadowy John of Procida, doctor of Frederick II and consigliere of Manfred, who travelled in the habit of a Franciscan friar and played a key role in stitching together a pan-European conspiracy to thwart Charles and France. Other adherents to the cause were the Genoese. They needed no incentive beyond seeing rival Venice signed up to support Charles's eastern adventures, and the Sicilians, whom Charles was taxing to pay for them. Matters came to a head in 1282, as the Venetian fleet assembled in Messina, ready to transport Charles's armies against Byzantium. Peter of Aragon assembled his own fleet on the Ebro, for, you understand, use against the infidel in North Africa, and waited for Charles's departure so he could invade Sicily behind his back. But Peter's Byzantine allies had no wish to see Charles's expedition bearing down on them, and determined to preempt his departure by blowing up Sicily. The fuse was lit just before the Vespers service in the Church of the Holy Spirit in Palermo on Easter Monday, with the massacre of a group of French officials. The slaughter then spread out across the island, with the French inability to pronounce Cicere, meaning chickpeas, a handy discriminator. In Messina, Charles's fleet was torched, and soon after the Aragonese arrived to take over Sicily. In a bizarre tailpiece, Charles, still in control of southern Italy, and Peter of Aragon agreed to settle Sicily's fate by duelling, each to be supported by 100 knights fighting it out in Bordeaux. On the appointed day in 1283, both sides presented themselves at the appointed arena, but at different times, allowing each to accuse the other of cowardice and claim victory. So Sicily would continue to have Spanish kings on its throne, with only brief interludes, until two centuries of control by the Bourbon dynasty in Madrid was finally ended by Garibaldi in 1860. As the 13th century drew to a close, high drama tipped over into what would have been farce had it not been so casually vicious. Papacy and Holy Roman Empire undermined and discredited themselves with a consistency which seems almost inspired. France profited, only to find itself embroiled in war with England. Let us start with the papacy. French Pope Martin IV responded to the Vestas and the collapse of the papacy's grand strategy by plotting revenge on Aragon. In league with Philip IV of France, he declared the Aragonese Crusade, an unsuccessful French punitive expedition over the Pyrenees. Note that this shabby episode took place just four years before the final extinction of the Crusader presence in the Holy Land, with the fall of Acre in 1289. There could have been no more eloquent proof of the ultimate debasement of the crusading ideal and the papacy's claim to the leadership of Christendom. 
After Martin's early death and three quickfire successors, Pope Boniface VIII made a final calamitous attempt at self-assertion. An escalating row with the French King Philip over money led to the promulgation in 1302 of Boniface's bull Unum Sanctam, a more categorical statement of papal supremacy than even Hildebrand had attempted at the height of the investiture conflict. It is necessary to salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff, he declared. Philip thought otherwise. Your venerable conceitedness may know that we are nobody's vassal in temporal matters. Philip then drew up a charge sheet against the Pope, comprising heresy, blasphemy, murder, sodomy, simony, sorcery, and, to make assurance doubly sure, failure to observe days of fasting. The usual steps followed excommunication of the king, deposition of the entire clergy of France, until a French delegation turned up in Italy and, aided and abetted by the Colonna family of Rome, seized the Pope in his hometown of Agnani. Seized him, and beat him, and starved him. So, although he was freed by his own adherents three days later, he died within months of profound chagrin. Philip ensured a French successor, Clement V, who simply removed the Curia to Poitiers, and then, in 1309, to Avignon. Babylonian captivity of the papacy had begun. Did the popes spend the next seventy years sitting down and weeping by the waters of the Rhone? Not a bit of it. The Babylonian captivity tag seems to have been the work of some later PR genius, brilliantly subverting the description of the Avignon papacy by Petrarch, that's the contemporary Italian poet, humanist and scholar, as a Babylon of luxury and corruption. Seven successive French popes did Francis bidding, until the return of the Pope to Rome in 1378 initiated 40 years of Western schism, a papacy split between rival French and Italian claimants until a single pontiff was finally recognised in Rome in 1417 as a product of the Council of Constance. We shall come to that in the next episode. One footnote to this mad sequence. After establishing himself in Avignon, Clement V was happy to connive with King Philip IV in the destruction of the Knights Templars. Both king and pope were roundly cursed by the Templar Grand Master, as he burned at the stake in 1314. Within the year, both were dead, and soon after the French royal house of Capet died out, opening the door to the Hundred Years' War. Last we saw of the Plantagenets, they had been kicked out of all France, save Aquitaine, and narrowly averted French invasion and occupation. Dismal King John was succeeded by son Henry III, who occupied the throne for more than half a century, achieving little more memorable than a succession of barons' wars. Prince Edward, however, was made of sterner stuff, leading the last and ninth crusade and then crushing the barons under Simon de Montfort, distributing his body parts around the main English cities to underline that enough was enough. Then, as Edward I, he subdued the Welsh and hammered the Scots, notably Braveheart William Wallace, at the Battle of Falkirk in 1298. 
Edward II lacked his father's grip. He lost Scotland to Robert Bruce at Bannockburn in 1314. He lost the barons by serial indulgence of court favourites. His wife Isabella, daughter of Philip IV, also known as the She-Wolf of France, found these favourites irksome too, and organised Edward's ouster in favour of their son, Edward III. That was 1327. And the following year, a new opportunity offered, when the third and last of Isabella's brothers, to be crowned King of France, died, without male heir. Was that the end of the Capetian dynasty? No, argued Isabella, the crown must pass to her son Edward, as grandson of Philip IV. Yes, said the people who mattered in Paris, dusting off the Salic law to argue that succession via a woman was invalid. And so the French crown passed to a cousin of the last Capetian, who, as Philip V, inaugurated the Valois dynasty, thus setting the scene for the Hundred Years' War, as the Plantagenets sought to substantiate their claim to the French throne. The first major land battle of the war was fought at Crecy in Picardy in 1346. It was a shattering defeat for the French. Their heavily armoured knights could not cope with the English longbowmen. A conspicuous casualty was blind King John of Bohemia, who was so taken with the refinement of the French court that he had chosen to live there. A blind king on a battlefield might seem a liability, but apparently he was effective enough in a cavalry charge, chained to comrades on either side. But perhaps it is unsurprising that he met his death in the subsequent melee. His son escaped back to Prague, where we shall re-encounter him soon as the Emperor Charles IV. Meanwhile, impressed by the dead king's gallantry, young Prince Edward of England, also known as the Black Prince, assumed his emblem of ostrich feathers and his motto of Ich Dien. Edward III then turned north to besiege Calais, accepting the city's surrender after an annoyingly long siege from a delegation of burghers with halters round their necks. See Rodin. In a pretty scene, Edward's queen implored him not to hang them, and he graciously agreed. So, just to recap, the last decades of the 13th century and opening decades of the 14th have seen the Crusaders expelled from the Holy Land, and all hopes of reunifying the Eastern and Western churches scotched. The papacy massively discredited, and the Holy Roman Empire weakened and confused, and now England and France recommitted to the course of mutual bloodletting. Surely, one might think, things could get no worse. In 1346, the Tatar forces besieging a Genoese trading post on the Crimea speeded the process by catapulting over the walls corpses infected with a new and uniquely virulent plague recently spread out of India. The Genoese fled and brought the plague ashore in Messina in 1347. Over the next four years, the Black Death would destroy more than 20 million people, or an estimated one-third of the population of Europe. The horror was ineluctable. There was no running, no hiding. Monasteries and castles fell to the invisible invader almost as readily as slums and villages. In Avignon, where half the population died, one-third of the cardinals succumbed. Petrarch's brother buried the prior of his monastery 
and thirty-four fellow monks before finding himself alone with his dog. Not that the animal kingdom escaped. Livestock, too, was devastated. Once the symptoms appeared, survival chances were less than one in five. Doctors were powerless. The medical profession might have made great advances in, for example, anatomy. But when it came to pharmacology, it was still a case of folklore meets alchemy with added astrology. Medicine had no real grasp of infection or contagion, and would have needed both to combat a disease that took two forms, pneumonic and septicemic, the latter sporting the dreaded buboes. Religion was not much help either, with men of God displaying extraordinary heroism, abject cowardice, and the full range of human responses in between. Roaming bands of flagellants sought to propitiate the wrath of God, and turned their rage and fear on the church and its establishments, and, inevitably, on the Jews, accused of poisoning wells. The psychological impact of this trauma was, of course, immeasurable. Confidence in the established order of human society collapsed. Economic systems were upended, with the strong helping themselves to orphaned assets, and many more unable to acquire the basics of existence. Inflation spiralled, with wages chasing prices up as labour began to realise that the balance of bargaining power with capital had shifted decisively in its favour. Revolution was in the air. Resumption of the Hundred Years' War was not what Europe needed at this juncture, but what it nonetheless got. The campaign that culminated in another crushing defeat of French chivalry at the hands of Edward the Black Prince at Poitiers in 1356 knocked the stuffing out of France. A bourgeois rising in Paris was followed by France's peasants' revolt, the Jacquerie, the following year. The Dauphin, King Jean was a prisoner in England, managed to suppress it. But the concept that the knightly class owed its privileges to its role as protector of the rest of society, the whole chivalric ethos of which France was the focus, was in tatters. Parenthetically, the English peasants were no happier than their French confrères to foot the bill for endless wars and ransoms to get their lords back and stage their own revolt in 1382. Emulating the Dauphin's tactics, Richard II dealt with them first with conciliation and promises, followed by betrayal and slaughter. Since the dawn of time, the man on horseback had been able to impose his own order from the saddle. No more. Already in 1302, the Flemish militia had administered a shock lesson in the evolution of warfare to the French cavalry at the Battle of the Golden Spurs, making clever use of waterlogged terrain, pikes and bowmen. After Poitiers, the knightly class turned increasingly to the imposition of disorder, the military brigandage that became a new scourge of the latter half of the 14th century. So-called free companies of mercenaries roamed wherever there was money to be made and spoils to be had. With northern Italy, rich, largely independent cities in almost perpetual conflict, a particularly happy hunting ground. Condottieri, they called themselves. The Englishman Sir John Hawkwood was one of the most notorious, illustrating the pan-European nature of this new form of free enterprise. Meanwhile... The Hundred Years' War dragged on, 
with periodic English campaigns of devastation launched cross-channel or out of Gascony. French forces seldom risked directly confronting the marauders, falling back on walled cities and hoping for the best. As when on Easter Monday, 1360, a freak hailstorm killed a thousand English and caused them to lift the siege of Chartres. With their Castilian allies, equipped with the new oared galleys, the French retaliated with extensive raiding along England's south coast. But they were losing the war, and the descent of Charles VI into madness was no help. He imagines himself to be made of glass, an obvious handicap in medieval warfare, and when the French nobility took it into their heads that it might be third time lucky against Henry V's bowmen at Agincourt in 1415, the game seemed finally to be up. Henry married Charles's daughter Catherine and was recognised as his heir to the French throne. But Charles and Henry were both soon dead, and though the English pressed their advantage, the Maid of Orleans bobbed up in 1429 to put some backbone into Charles VII and initiate a series of those strangely unremarked French military victories, which culminated in Castillon in 1453, the decisive battle which drove the English out of southwest France and ended the war with England having nothing but Calais to show for more than a century of conflict. As a further nail in the horseman's coffin, the bowmen's too for that matter, Castillon was the first major battle in which artillery played a decisive role. But we have got a bit ahead of ourselves here. This episode was meant to focus on the 14th century, and we have covered the decline of the papacy, the Hundred Years' War and the Black Death, along with its devastating economic and social impacts, all of which seems adequately to justify the episode's title. What we have not included is the biggest military calamity of all, administered in 1396 to the combined armies of Christendom by a new menace from the East, the Ottoman Turks. Please join me for the next episode when we shall pick up that story. <laughs> ¶¶